The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectators Book Club podcast and our special pre-Christmas edition. I'm Sam Neath, literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is Penn Vogler, the food historian whose new book is Stuffed, A History of Good Food and Hard Times in Britain. And it's full of, well, as we'll find out, full of all sorts of Christmassy things, um, as well as all sorts of good food. Penn, welcome. Now, Stuffed has a kind of double valency in your title. And I want to start by asking you a bit about what the, because it's a huge, wide-ranging social, cultural history. But what what was it setting out initially to sort of address? So stuffed is the kind of two, the good and the bad of our food system. The good, there's the good stuffed where you've had a nice meal, you're stuffed pleasantly, hopefully, full of food and feeling kind of good about the world or your larder is stuffed full of food and you feel that you can approach the winter season, you know, with equanimity. And of course, the bad stuffed is the opposite, is when you have no food, no choices, you've run out of road. And really what I was trying to do is think if we're all kind of aspiring to the good stuffed, and yet so often historically people have ended up being stuffed, literally, because of pandemics or wars or the plague or because of, you know, the cost of living crisis, all those things that sound really familiar to us today. And really I wanted to figure out how historically people have thought about those kind of, you know, those kind of inequalities and what responsibility people have taken for it. So what's the, you know, if you're stuffed because you have no food, you've done it of road, is that your responsibility or a business's responsibility or a government's or how does that pan out? So that was my kind of starting question. Yes, you talk, I think, about a wobbly three-legged stool of this, this true thing that's big. And your focus is on British food culture and the history of how we have managed food supply and you know how we eat and create our food and consume it. How how much does that differ from the continents or or the wider worlds? Is there something very distinctive about the British food culture? I came to feel there was something very distinctive. I mean, without being remotely an expert in you know, apart from having gone to France and Italy and Portugal and eating lovely food. I I don't have any expertise over there from kind of other places, but I think there's something very specific about the Anglo-Saxon food culture. And I think the Americans have probably inherited some of it from us and that it's very hierarchical. It's very class-based and also it's very industrial. And so the kind of pivot to the heart of my book in a way is that moment when we stop being an agricultural country, when the enclosures, sort of landlords enclosed their land, which meant people didn't have access to grazing for their livestock. And we became an industrial population. And so we are an industrial population and we've learned to feed ourselves in fairly industrial ways. And I think that's quite resonant in the way that in our current worries about the kind of quality of the food that we're eating you know we talk about ultra processed food and it's food that's made in a factory not in a farm and I think that's very dependent on our history and you trace the roots of that right back to the period enclosures which we're talking about kind of 
you know, 17th and 18th centuries rather than 19th and 20th, are we? I think so. I mean, the enclosure, the first enclosure act was quite early. It's about, I think it was 1604, possibly 1608, and it was in Radipole in Dorset. But enclosures have been happening on a sort of informal basis for a long time. And then they became much, much more formalised. And we had hundreds of enclosure acts, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries. When, And the thing about the enclosures is that it's not that people, it's not that land was owned in common. It's often thought that uh, the land was owned and farmed in common. Um, and that's not quite the case. What really happened is that the landowner, that might have been the church, it might have been the, um, you know, a, a big farmer, landowner, lord or whatever, took sort of just fenced off his land, stopped people using it in common. So he, often he, not always he, in the case of the Duchess of Sutherland and, uh, you know, in Scotland. She was the worst of the lot, wasn't she? She was, she was probably the worst of the lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Although in Scotland it's called clearances, but it's a very similar process. And can you, I mean, it's a vast question to ask, but, you know, I'm sure you're up to it. Can you give a sort of very brief sketch of effectively how back then enclosure changed the way we produced and consumed food? I mean, what was our food culture like before it? What did our villages look like? And a hundred years on, what did, what did things look like? What were we eating? How did it change? Yeah, I think so before the enclosures, and it's very, you know, obviously it's incredibly graded depending on the who you're talking about, whether you're talking about, you know, an agricultural labourer who probably has an incredibly limited palate, not palate, but incredibly limited kind of menu, or Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, you know, who has the sort of all the goodness of uh, a grouse moor and, you know, the local dairy to, to draw on. But broadly, I think, before the enclosures, our, our palate was kind of broad, but rather whole foody. So people would eat the whole of everything. They would eat all the beans and all the kind of, you know, the grain of a bread. And so actually people's diets were probably not unnutritious, lacking in a lot of things, lacking in protein, perhaps, but probably again, depending on what sort of level people are, of kind of income people have, a lot of those kind of micronutrients and kind of broad food groups would have been met by a diet, which wasn't probably very exciting, not very varied. And then, of course, as it gets more post-industrial and also not just industrial, but, an in, you know, import, uh, we stopped being self-sufficient around 18, I don't know, 15 or something. It's, it's hard to tell exactly when self-sufficient in grain, for example, and imports just become incredibly important. And of course, the imported stuff that we bring in, apart from tobacco, which is not, I don't talk about because it's not a food group, but things like sugar and tea, spices, then they're often not necessarily terribly good for the diet, particularly in the case of sugar. But we also bring in, start importing a lot of meat. And it means that people's diets are much, much wider and so long as you have kind of tinned food and then frozen food in the early 20th century, the range of food that people had was enormously wider. But the quality of that food was often quite degraded by processing and by and now recently ultra processing. So what you, I mean, I'm interested in the way you've arranged the book as well, because it's not straight chronology at all. You've, you've kind of done it more eccentrically than that. What? What was the drive behind how you organised it, apart from making it fun and surprising? Yes, I suppose so. Um, 
I think I was thinking about it in terms of themes, really, because the pivot for me was the enclosures. But I didn't want to write a book just about the enclosures, because what I wanted to do in the first two sections are really kind of broadly before the enclosures and broadly after the enclosures. And I'm not a historian of the enclosures. And I what I was really interested in was kind of what happened to those people who kind of lost their livelihood. Did somebody take responsibility for them? Did somebody kind of give them an allotment or a small holding or something so they could feed themselves in a different way? And so it was really that question that I look at in different sorts of scenarios. I was very interested about how that question gets played out in different kind of social changes, but also in the in the war, for example, if you have soldiers fighting abroad, you have soldiers in the Crimean War, or soldiers in the peninsula, or how did they get fed? How, who takes responsibility for them? And I could see that changing across that sort of the 19th century. And if you have food that's being, what we were just talking a minute ago about, if you have food being imported and it's much cheaper food and maybe some of the quality isn't as good, do you have a kind of a sort of triangular, this triangular system where you have the government and you have the individual or the consumer or often the mum, in fact, trying to kind of figure out how to feed her family on a way that isn't so, you know, is, is good for them. And then you have businesses. And so I was kind of interested in the organisation, how organisations kind of arrange the way that we eat. And organisations might be military or they might be business or they might be the supermarkets and where the kind of government feels its role has been historically. And then those points where it's all changes and they often changes because you have a crisis and we all feel so close to crises at the moment because of the pandemic, because of the war in Ukraine. And they felt very resonant. So I was sort of broadly seeing these themes and just exploring those kind of central ideas through each of those different themes. So that's resulted in what might be a slightly, like you say, an eccentric um, kind of pick and mix. Well, well so, someone who's, who's greedy like me, because you, you start each chap, chapter, you focus on a particular food stuff, and that's fantastically attractive. Like now, you actually mentioned the wars, and they, they're a very good instance Um because you say, you know, how did you play in the Peninsula War? How did you play in the Crimean War? If I understand you rightly, the answer is not too badly in the Peninsula War and barely at all in the Crimean War. What went wrong? Yeah, the Crimean War was extraordinary. I think what went wrong was, um, oh, several things, but there were, you know, there were inquiries to try and figure out what went wrong in the Crimean War. I think the Crimean War was a strange kind of collision of Victorian snobbery and disdain for food, because the person, the commissariat, the de department that kind of, ex, you know, that kind of fed the army, everybody looked down on them. They weren't proper soldiers. They weren't gentlemen. And that kind of sustain infected, particularly in the Crimean War, you didn't have the genius of the Duke of Wellington, who, in spite of his disdain and his kind of magnificent snobbery, knew that you had to feed your soldiers. And he was a fantastic logis logistician and he was good. He learned from Napoleon, who was also a very good log logistician. He kind of learned his tricks and techniques. And he knew that he had to get food in different ways to his, um, to his soldiers in the peninsula. So they did, you know, I'm not saying they didn't go hungry. I'm not saying they didn't make mistakes. But I think broadly in the Crimea War, and also we knew a lot more. It's like, you know, the, the Times was there in 
what was then Constantinople reporting on the hospital where Florence Nightingale was treating patients who were dying from malnutrition related diseases. And the whole thing was just crazy. And people back at home in England were so angry that their soldiers were, were just not being fed because the food given to them was because inadequate or non-existent. Now there's, there's, I mean, the Crimean War also suddenly emerged from a couple of, of the years of your book. I mean, one of them, which I hadn't noticed, that Mary Seacole, as well as a nurse, was pretty good on the old chefing front as well. And the other one is Alexis Soye, or Soye, or however we now pronounce him. Tell us about Soye, because he pops in and out of your book and he's always doing, you know, riding to the rescue in this fabulous way. He's a complete fabulous person. It's so interesting that neither you or I know how to pronounce him, even though I've read so much about him and even written about him. And I suspect that's because we don't actually pay him very much attention anymore because he was a cook. He was a French cook. And like Mary Seacole, who's also really interesting. So we think of Mary Seacole as a nurse, and that's why we're interested in her, even though slightly belatedly. But actually, the thing that she recognised that the a lot of the value that she took to the you know soldiers in the Crimea was looking after them with good nourishing and sort of healthy food. And she put a huge premium on the importance of that. And this is what Soya did as well. So he's such a fascinating person. He was kind of called a celebrity chef now. And I slightly balk at that term because I don't think I don't think Nightingale is a celebrity nurse, for example. I think his what he does goes beyond celebrity. He took himself off to Dublin in the Great Famine in Ireland to, to try and show people how to kind of create, you know, to, to feed people on sort of cheap soup. He took himself also to Constantinople and um, the hospital in Scutari to help feed these poor patients in the hospitals because they had this ridiculous kind of system and these smoky kitchens and dirty saucepans and nobody knew how to cook and nobody knew anything about nutrition and he came and he just kind of it's extraordinary that you know you have a military with military operations and a chaotic system and this incredibly flamboyant French chef who kind of wore sort of red and yellow and swirly cloaks and everything very kind of uh, self-promoting and very flamboyant boy he's the person who comes in and really brings military discipline to that kitchen and shows that the men cooks as he calls them how to cook meat for example so that it's not raw in the middle and tough on the outside and you know how to keep the stock because it's nutritious don't throw it away or don't make tea from it because your tea will taste disgusting <laughs> might taste disgusting I find quite nice. also having that that kind of sense of the military discipline i mean the idea of food as something that can be systematically produced. I mean, you were another of the kind of passing characters you mentioned is Escoffier, who kind of tailorizes the kitchens of, of I guess, it was the Ritz, wasn't it? Um, he did. He worked with Cesar Ritz, yes, yes. And there's this sort of idea that, that rather than being something that people do in a kind of really handed down from generation to generation orally, you can make cooking... A systematic thing it can be made faster if you specialize and you know recipes can be written down and passed on when did all that happen well i mean he's interesting because he's at he's at the end he's the turn of the that century so he uh he himself was a prisoner of war in the franco-prussian war and that's where he learned to kind of cook to look after you know his kind of military superiors i guess and he took those 
experiences, both of bringing rigor to a system, but also to produce quite amazing meals from very, very sort of unpromising looking ingredients. And that was really important to him. Uh, and that's something that a lot of writers at the time said, the French are really good at this, the English are rubbish. We're very wasteful as cooks. We throw loads of good stuff away and we don't kind of repurpose it. But he brings this idea of having, you know, the inner restaurant kitchen, he had definite rules about how everybody had to be focused, they couldn't be drunk and they had to kind of work in silence. And instead of one person making one dish, you know, you kind of divide it up, you have the Pritchett Kitchen Brigade. And he kind of introduces this idea and it's it means that, Everything happens much more, much more quickly and more efficiently. But for him, the food still had to be good. So he wasn't a, it wasn't Taylorism in that set. I mean, I, I don't know. It wasn't this idea that um, you just had to kind of get it out of the system, you know, get it out of the factory. It didn't matter what kind of quality it was. And he was interesting because he felt that women had much better, more sensitive palates than men. And he much preferred cooking for women. So he does things like, you know, Pesh Melba for kind of Nelly Melba and, um, you know, sort of fruity dishes for Sarah Bernhardt, the actress and that sort of thing. There's this idea that, you know, chapter on strawberries comes in that strawberries are a feminine thing, that that eating fruit is somehow a bit girly. Um, Eating fruit is so funny, isn't it? Yeah, I found this fantastic post on Reddit. So this young man says, I like strawberries. My dad says that's girly. But why? Is, is eating strawberries girly? And those are people email him back and some of them, you know, on Reddit and some say, yeah, actually eating strawberries is really girly. You should be ashamed of yourself. And some <laughs> of them go, no, that's completely ridiculous. Of course, it's not girly. Eat what you want. And um, so I go for asking the internet anything. Yeah, exactly. But there is a sense that, I mean, lots of, uh, lots of academics do sort of um, research on, you know, do women eat fruit, do men eat fruit? And on the whole in Britain, they find that women eat more fruit than men. And nobody really knows why. Well, I mean, that, that hits at something that's a larger theme of the book, which is the extent to which what we eat is kind of acculturated and that there's, you know, a whole set of ideas about identity that surround them. And I, it's how you talk about various, you know, when we think of sort of stereotypical British foods, I mean, obviously, you know, later on it comes to be chicken tikka masala, but the roast beef of old England and... You know, we, we think of, of strawberries and cream and Christmas pudding or plum pudding. Where where do these things come from? Are they, I mean, the ploughman's lunch, for instance, I was kind of startled to discover was a much more recent invention than I thought. It's tragic, isn't it? Yeah, an invention of the cheese bureau or something in the, in the kind of milk marketing boards in the 1970s who just <laughs> needed us to eat more cheese, please. And so they went, let's invent the ploughman's lunch. Tragically, although actually things like fondue, Swiss fondue has a very similar story. They're all kind of inventions and by marketing boards to try and get people to eat more cheese. But what what other of our traditions older than that? I mean, I, I don't know, in Italy, for instance, you say peas, which are, I think, actually the very first chapter you say, you know, bowl of peas seems very, very rich. But what, I mean, those are not garden peas we're talking about quite, are they? They're Peas and beans, yeah, peas and beans. So beans, beans particularly, beans, I mean, peas are some peas pudding. They'd be dried peas, different kinds. Beans also, old, you know, older, 
you know, older than Europe itself. And they all have these incredibly sort of long histories. And they're probably the one of the most traditional dishes you could imagine, actually. I was looking for a bean dish and I found one. The first sort of recorded cookbook we have is from about 12, about 1390, sorry. And um, it's the two cooks of Richard II and they have a kind of a record of their their recipes. And their first recipe in that in that was now a book was a role is for fried beans or e-friday beans beanies probably they called them and you know it's basically a medieval bean burger and it with all this with all the spices and the flavorings that you'd have you know in a contemporary bean burger and pretty good actually they're pretty nice I, I put a recipe for them in my book and I, I make them quite often so but we tend to we tend to downplay our vegetable heritage and play up our kind of meat heritage so you talked about roast beef and you know and venison and those all they've always had real kind of pride of place in our kind of set in our kind of status but then there's other meat things like I talk about goose quite a lot in the book because for me the goose is like a an image of our common land because Cobbett when he was riding across the commons in Surrey you know, in the early 19th century, says he saw tens of thousands of geese. You know, there were just flocks and flocks and flocks of them everywhere. And every single one would have been owned by a, an individual. And every single one of them, well, not every single one, but so many of them would have gone to be somebody's Christmas dinner or lunch or whatever it is. And of course, once those common lands get enclosed, those individuals don't get their goose for Christmas lunch any longer, but a lot more sheep for wool and beef for kind of beef and also for the navy very important kind of customer for farmers of the navy and salt beef that takes over and there's this that what I, the idea that takes over that this is for the good of the country and even though the individual might suffer and not you know not get their meat not have their protein the country needs the wealth from beef wool sheep mutton or whatever it is and if it's good for the country then it's good for everybody. And that's a kind of central idea, you know, okay, so the individual might really suffer and a lot of people really did, but the country needs, the country has this hugely kind of growing population. The country needs to feed itself, but it also needs the wealth to kind of, you know, promote all its sort of wars and, you know, colonial undertakings and all the rest of it. How much was that true? And how much was that? I mean, obviously, you know, you're seeing a lot of people who are essentially impoverished or, or deprived of some of by a system of enclosure and a system of, you know, cash cropping of various sorts that's going to make an oligarchy very, very rich. How, how true was the argument that that actually did benefit the country? I mean, I suppose in the sense that we go abroad and our imperial properties start to send us back some really good stuff and in the sense that the economy starts to churn happily... There was some truth in it, wasn't there, or was it was it just a con? Oh, I don't think it was a con at all. I mean, it's it was essential for us to become an industrialized. You know, the enclosures were essential for us to become an industrialized power. You needed to have people to go to the cities to work in industries, and you know, and it's those people who don't can't kind of live on the land who go and do that. And also, I think key and all this period in particular in the 19th century but also at the end of the 18th century is incredibly fast population explosion and people it's rather like us worrying about immigrants now but 
you know what I mean? That our, our island is not big enough to support the amount of people coming into it. But in a century and a half or two centuries ago, that was all internal. And there was this real worry that we were not wealthy enough or big enough. We didn't have enough farmland to support the number of people who were surviving into adulthood. And, you know, these kind of cities were getting huge, getting enormous. How are we going to feed all these people? And of course, importing food was the answer, was one answer. Enclosures was another answer and kind of turning the idea was that every single sort of bit of common land would be, or, you know, commonly sort of used land or every bit of sort of more land would be made as profitable and as kind of productive as possible. This idea of improvement was very, was the kind of other side of the coin of the enclosures. It wasn't just enclosing existing land, it was finding sort of marginal land and somehow making it productive because of this worry of how are you going to feed all these people that are just being born and living through adulthood? Well, there was, when you talk about these improvements and this sort of, if you like, top-down project of of trying to make the agricultural system work better, the, the, Ireland is, seems to be one of the most kind of tragic instances of this when it comes to potato famine. But if I'm reading you rightly, the Irish were, were growing you know, grains to start with, and they shifted to potatoes because they found out it worked better. And yet that then turned out to be their downfall. What are the lessons from that? Well, the lessons that don't rely on one crop, you know, the lessons that don't go for monoculture. And this is a lesson. Every time you read a paper on monoculture, you know, the monoculture of avocados or the monoculture of wheat or something, most academics start with a lot with the warning from the Great Famine in Ireland. And everybody just ignores it because you know hey that was a century and a half ago but it's definitely a threat I think to you know we have two types of avocados if you had a blight that wiped out one or both of them that would be the avocado gone but a lot of people's livelihoods gone but I think the thing about Ireland was what was Ireland is such a kind of complex and contested uh, history but I think Ireland had a very definite sort of food history and food traditions, which was sort of eradicated by the Anglo-Irish ascendancy in terms of status. So the idea of the way that kind of Irish people produced food, the English people would go and go, oh, that's really disgusting. You know, they're making cheese with their hands and all oh, their sweat gets into it. And, uh, and you know, and that kind of thing, there was a sort of, dismissive dismissal of kind of the way that Irish people made food but also it's the economics isn't it so Irish peasants were again it's the growing population how do you keep these growing people you know how do you keep a growing population fed when they're semi-subsistent or wholly subsistent on smaller and smaller and smaller patches of land and the answer for them was to just grow potatoes because potatoes gave them more nutrients than grain would have done. So they could just about feed themselves on potatoes because they didn't have the land to produce grain and protein and white meat, you know, milk and dairy and all the rest of it. And so I think it's it was the way that the whole kind of Anglo-Irish setup that kind of pushed people into smaller and smaller areas of land and they became totally dependent on that like one crop that was so devastatingly unresistant to the to the blight. 
the reaction to that, as at various points in your book, to various food crises, in some quarters was a kind of quite shockingly sort of laissez-faire. It was a kind of, this is just the operation of God or the market and it will all come right in the end. Yeah, I mean, I think it was even beyond laissez-faire. It was, there were some people in government who were quite sort of um, evangelical about the Great Famine and went, mm, yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? But it's kind of God's way of sorting out too big a population. And that was quite a prevalent sort of, people didn't always, you know, people talked about kind of providence. They said, oh, the, this providential famine. And I, it made, so there was a kind of, a, there was also a view from within Westminster that whatever happened in Ireland, the Irish had to take responsibility for themselves. It's this whole idea of, you know, where does the responsibility lie? And whereas Westminster, you know, and the government in England tended to say, you know, all that responsibility has got to be taken by the Irish people, which was crazy because there were so many Irish people who didn't have the wherewithal to even feed themselves at the time. Which seemed to echo that. There's a sort of alarming little side note where you essentially say, well, in order to prosecute our trade war with China, we needed lots of cash crops grown in Bengal. So, you know, when the crops failed in Bengal, there was the awful Bengali famine. Um, One of many that, yeah, I mean, the Bengal, poor Bengal was constantly subjected to famines, exactly because we needed tea or crops grown so that we could give something to, you know, trade with China or opium, of course. We'd be quite kind of dirigiste until until it all goes wrong, and then we're like, oh well, it's just the operations of fate. Yes, what a shame. <laughs> we'll, we'll try. We'll try somewhere else. But the thing about it going wrong is it going wrong is the devastating, but sometimes essential thing, and that it's the thing that makes governments actually occasionally kind of sit up and kind of notice. So, for example, you have um, in the Second Boer War, there was a big scandalous report that young men trying to rec be recruited for the army, if they'd been state educated, they were five inches shorter than their privately ed educated counterparts. And they had rickets and they had dental caries and they were just in really bad health. And the recruiting sergeants just turned most of them away. And this was made into a report that became an absolute scandal. But as a result of that, people started thinking, actually, maybe we should feed our young people, maybe we should feed kids, maybe we should feed our young men. And so school dinners, the sort of legal version, the official legal local authority version of school dinners grows out of that, because which hitherto had been illegal because of the Poor Law Amendment Act. Yes, the fact they were actually actively illegal is extraordinary. Not illegal to kind of give, not through charity, but for local authorities to pay for kids. Charity could only be given in the workhouse to indigent families. And so out, you know, so out of that kind of the, the, the crisis of the Boer War, you get some advance and, and some kind of acknowledgement by the government that they got to kind of intervene and do something. Because in fact, having an ill-fed population turns out to be very bad for national security. You know, that's one of one of several instances in which this seems to butt up right against the present day. I mean, this question of free school meals, and you, you describe the origins of the division in the Victorian era between the deserving and the undeserving poor, which still seems to be with us. I think of you know, 50p Lee and so on. I mean, 
are we just going around the hamster wheel and seeing the same thing coming again or is there something different in in kind what we've got now i think one of the things that's different there's there, there's two answers to that one is that we have so much food around us at the moment um, and it's not as if there's a short as occasionally are you know shortages of kind of tomatoes or peppers or something in the supermarkets but there's in theory there's enough food to go around and so our just you know our kind of equality of distribution is obviously and so that's kind of thing number one and I suppose thing number two is that the quality of our food is probably not up to scratch anymore and we've kind of been here before so at the moment we have food where a lot of food is very ultra processed it's it's you know it doesn't have the nutrients you need it's designed and it's engineered to be extracted and kind of recombined to give people a lot of calories and not enough nutrients and that's not a great situation for a diet because you get people who have too many calories they become might become over overweight and have illnesses associated with obesity but they might not be getting the nutrients the micronutrients they need to sort of help fight off disease and things and we have kind of been here before in the 19th century we had a crisis of adulteration when most food, if you lived in a city, most of the food you could buy would be either bulked out. So bread, for example, would be bulked out with like a powder, like a powdered mineral called alum. And if you were buying pickles, they would be colored green with copper. If you were buying vinegar, it would be watered down and given a nice little sort of tang, you know, with sulfuric acid. Nearly every, coffee was often a tiny bit coffee, mostly chicory tea would be sort of slow leaves because they dry up nice and black you know so nearly everything that you could buy would be adulterated either to have very little nutrients or it might be quite toxic lots of sweets for kids were just painted with kind of toxic you know with lead and um copper and sort of quite toxic there's a fantastic bestseller you mentioned which which was in the the vanguard of the fight against adulteration. What was that called again? So death in the pot. <laughs> Such a good yeah, yeah. Again, a German, you know, we talked about Alexis Sawyer, who is French. This is a German chemist comes along and says, this is crazy. You Brits are absolutely crazy. Why are you putting up with all this stuff? It's, you know, it's adulterated, it's toxic. And he came up with all these little experiments to kind of show whether something had something kind of added to it. But it didn't really, until for decades, it didn't really kind of connect with people until the microscope, until a, a chemist and physician called Arthur Hill Hassel got his microscope and said, right, if you put something under this microscope, you can see that this is coffee, this is like 5%, 95% of this stuff is something else, you know, chicory or grounds or something. And he was unimpeachable. And he worked with the Lancet, the doctor's paper, and he went to shops all around London, came back and said, right, this is what's in the mustard. This is what's in the bread. This is what's in the pickles. This, and he named and shamed. And that is probably one of the things that really started to make a difference. But the pushback against that was sort of fascinating because the same arguments seem to be made then as are made now about ultra-right processed food, which is A, it's consumer choice, and B, if we're not actually poisoning you, you know, I mean, there's an extraordinary quote from somebody, I, th I think a representative for select committee, saying, well, look, you know, full transparency that people are, you know, whether or not people are getting what you're telling them you're getting would be bad for everybody. It would be terrible because it would make food would be more expensive, you know, because you wouldn't 
you be giving people food. And Arthur Hill Hassel actually was really interested in this idea of choice. And he and he said, I think what something which is probably true today, is that for poor people, there is no choice because what you're offering poor people is degraded, cheap food. You're not offering them cheap, good food. It's not like they have a choice between cheap, good food and, you know, and, and cheap, bad food, that you're just giving them degraded food. And he said that takes away this idea that you have completely free choice. And the idea of completely free choice was very attractive to a kind of laissez-faire government. And at the time, the government said, you know, people, there's the press, the, the press is free. Anybody can publish anything they like in the press. And then there's competition. And those two things will just drive a kind of perfect market. And of course, they didn't in the 19th century. And the equivalent today, I would say that uh, we have the press, but also we have labeling. But labeling, it's not as if you understand what's on your label, because you know, it's not perfect information because we don't know what most of this stuff is and what most of this stuff does. And of course, the competition actually makes it worse. I think a lot of um, the head of Tesco, I think, quite ahead of quite a lot of other supermarkets say that the competition is driving standards down and that what you need is government intervention to bring standards up so we have a level playing field. Are you sympathetic to that position or do you think, because I know there has been Again, quite a lot of sort of challenge the idea that you can group, you know, ultra processed foods together because all these additives and processes are, are you know, they're different chemicals and different processes. I mean, it, is there an argument that, that some of that's a witch hunt, that some of it's sort of conflating a whole lot of things? I think I'm, I'm actually surprisingly sympathetic to businesses who feel that they are as caught in the vice as everybody else, you know, caught in the kind of vice of expectation and the vice of a kind of market that's kind of driving. You know, so, and so they feel like if, they have, if they're going to give people cheap food, all they can do is give them cheap ultra-processed food. That argument about is it all equally as bad as each other, is it equally as kind of bad as each other? A few processes is this as bad as ultra-processed food. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because... I'm a home cook. And for me, looking at a label, I don't find it terribly difficult to figure out what looks like something I would want to eat and something that is more or less something I would make myself out of one or two processes and one or two kind of preservatives or something. I don't find it difficult to, to distinguish between that and something which has got 30 ingredients in, which I just wouldn't personally want to eat and so of course it is grey but I think what worries me slightly is this idea that um, you shouldn't criticise ultra processed food because that's a criticism of the people who eat it and I don't accept that argument because I think the problem is when people don't have the agency they don't have the education or they don't have the income or they live in food deserts and that whole kind of system of food is the problem. And yes, I agree that you shouldn't, nobody should be shamed because they can't afford to buy something better. I totally agree with that. But if you're creating food, which you know is going to be toxic to somebody, I think there is quite a good argument for shaming those people. Yeah. Well, I'd like to end on a slightly cheerier note as, as we sign off for Christmas, which is just your chapter on Christmas pudding. Tells us all sorts of things we hadn't known about about the invention of this this tradition and 
uh, the, the pudding itself tells us a bit of a story of our national identity. Can you set out what's what's so important about Christmas pudding? Why why do we eat it? So Christmas pudding, uh, if you, we've probably all been to Stir Up Sunday, we've probably all stirred off our Christmas puddings, or at least kind of started to get them in from the shops. Um, the Christmas pudding is for all its wonderful kind of global, iconic size and shape and sort of history it's a total fudge it's totally kind of in the depths of it this lovely kind of dark sweet currenty depths is a fudge between this idea of something that's very kind of global and and british and something that we've relied on imports to kind of create and in the 19th century this came with a real problem because um we were kind of importing all this food. We had this great belief in free trade, but actually a lot of the people we were importing food from were our colonies who were producing more expensive food. And actually they hated the idea of free trade because it was punishing them because we weren't buying their goods. And so in the 19th century, there was a real kind of tussle between this idea of empire and this idea that empire was a good thing. It's a good thing, not just for the people in Britain, it was a good thing for the people in the empire and the people in the empire saying, well, it's only a good thing if you're actually going to buy our currants, raisins, sultanas, sugar, brandy and all the rest of it and not buy them from Brazil or somewhere that's cheaper, you know, somewhere maybe that still has slavery and it's cheaper. And obviously, as we know, you know, free trade sort of died a, for, for many reasons, died a death kind of around the beginning of the 19th, uh, beginning of the 20th century. But I found that the Christmas pudding was a, such a wonderful kind of contrast because it's such a kind of icon. You know, the shape of it is a globe and yet it's a British thing. And people, the idea was that, this is like we're going back to Alexis Sawyer and Mary Seacole has this fantastic quote. She says she couldn't believe the amount of faff and preparation and ordering currents from, to be sent from home. And everybody in the middle of a war in the Crimea is dead set on making their Christmas pudding because it's such an image of kind of Britain and Britishness. And yet almost none of the ingredients come from there. But it's also extraordinary free, the sort of haggling seems to go on at some point when the Christmas pudding becomes a kind of advertising showcase for the fruits of empire. Tell me the story, because you'll remember. Yeah, so, so empire is kind of beginning to fall apart, you know, for these reasons, you know, because of free trade empire and trade with empire is beginning to kind of fall apart. And so instead of, um, but the idea of introducing tariffs is a political trap, you know, for whatever government is in charge because the poor, because poor do, nobody wants tariffs because it's going to make food more expensive, right? So instead they come up with this thing called the Empire Marketing Board. And instead there's a whole kind of government department that tries to kind of promote empire good. And you have Empire Day, you have Empire Shopping Day, you have uh, the Empire Exhibition, which is a bit like the kind of Crystal Palace Exhibition, but it doesn't have all the nations. It just has the nations of the British Empire. In. And there's um, and, and little films were made about sort of showing all the kind of goods that come in from the empire and what happy family we all kind of are. And as a result, and the kind of centerpiece of this empire marketing was the creation of a Christmas pudding. And uh, they do a little film and uh, the king gives his recipe. It says, yes, yes, you may use my Monsieur Sedard, my, my chef, you can use his recipe. And, and they do a little film and there's every single ingredient from different parts of the empire all kind of in, in, 
involved and you have a little recipe card and people can send off for their recipe card and know that you're getting currants and sultanas and raisins from the right place. The Canadians get really pissed off at one point though, don't they? Yes, I think there's lots of, there was lots of horse trading because, you know, this, um, the, uh, the first time that it kind of gets done the first year there's nothing from cyprus for example it's Cy- cyprus sorry it's cyprus not Calais. and the um i think he's a i, I can't i think he must be the cultural attache from cyprus or anyway sort of makes it you know rings not rings the empire marketing board and says you must serve it with cypriot brandy sauce you know when you're making it tomorrow because otherwise we'll be really angry so there's lots of kind of horse trading about kind of whose ingredients and the australians are very worried they're very worried that they're this because Britain is such a massive market for their kind of dried fruit and everything. And then this, these wretched Californian sun-made raisins start appearing on the scene. And the Australians kind of want to protect their, their fantastic market in Britain from, the, from this, these upstarts in California. Well, thank goodness it's all better now. Anyway, Ben Vogler, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> nice to talk to you, Simon.